I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. We are looking at 10 psalms this summer. And uh, here is another one, Psalm 78. As you find your way there and get the sermon notes from your bulletin that I know will be helpful to you, I will just mention that uh, today, across town, uh, our pastoral resident, uh, Craig Alfred and his wife are over there. Craig is is preaching this morning at Central. Um, Next Sunday, uh, we continue to work with the folks down at Grace Community Church, uh, south side of Tacoma. And I had lunch with one of their elders this week to talk over some details. Next Sunday, Pastor Tyler and Karen and Kathy and I will be over there. Their worship service is 1030, so we'll be here for a bit in the morning and then head on over there just to kind of pave the way and, uh, and meet all the folks. So can things continue to progress with both of those other uh, churches that, that we're able to help at this season. So that's pretty cool. So uh, stay tuned, and we'll, we'll give you more information as we, as we move ahead. Um, Psalm 78. We have, we have visited several so far, starting in July. Several of those have been psalms of lament. And you'll remember, as you look at the review section on your sermon notes there, psalms come in a variety of, of, of themes and moods, just like songs in a songbook. And uh, there are psalms of lament and psalms that are focused on a king and kingship. We say royal psalms. Psalm 78 is a teaching psalm. It's longer than some of the others. It's more than just an expression of emotion. 72 verses long, but it's intended to tell a story, and it has a point. It's like an arrow. Uh, It's got some length, and it's got a point to it. And uh, just like some of the other psalms that are teaching psalms, Psalm 119 is probably the most famous of those. 176 verses long, for goodness sakes, that's that's pretty long, uh, the longest, of the course, of the Psalms, teaching us about the value of the Word of God. Well, Psalm 78 similarly takes a journey through the history of Israel and saying, would you listen? Would you learn? What, what, what do you see here? And Asaph, the writer here, um, focuses on several things. Now, to help us get to his main point, uh, I want to reflect with you very briefly on a, a couple of quotations from a book that I read a couple years ago called Rescuing Ambition. I've referred to this before. It's from Dave Harvey. Uh, Rescuing Ambition. I mean, why would you read a book like that? I mean, ambition's good, right? Well, he spends most of the book just exploring uh, ambition and, and the good parts of it and the parts that can go south. How wanting things can be wonderful if we're wanting the right things for the right reasons. And Yet at the same time, our heart, same time, our hearts sometimes take a left turn and we end up wanting either the wrong things or the right things for the wrong reason. But then he gets around toward chapter 11 and he kind of shifts a little bit in, in a way that I, I thought, well, I didn't see it coming, but I thought it was really helpful. He calls it ambition paid forward. And in this chapter is a call to, to churches to God's people, families, whatever the situation, to make sure that in our ambition, we are looking ahead to the next generation. That is, that our ambitions don't just focus on what we do in our lifetime, those of us who are now adults packing on a few years, but that in our ambition, that we set our eyes on the next generation, wanting to help them run faster and further than we 
So he says a couple of things here, and I'm just going to read a couple moments, and then then we'll step right into this psalm, because that's really where Psalm 78 is going. In fact, he quotes this psalm. Uh, He says this, quoting Dave Harvey now. He says, one of the ways God transformed my ambition was to change its focus in his kindness. He shifted my dreams away from myself and toward the generation that would follow mine. I begin to realize that godly ambition means that I think about what happens after I'm gone. It means we carry a passion to transfer an understanding of the gospel to our children and to their children and to theirs. Ambitions begin to grow in me for what Psalm 78 verse 4 describes. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. And then he talks a bit about what that, what that looks like and why he would do that. And this one element as well, I think it fits where we're at. He says, this means that if you have a burden for adult education, but the church needs someone to teach kids, grab the milk and cookies and get your lesson ready. Yeah, he's saying, hey, you know what? Jump in there. Sometimes people say, that's really not where I'm gifted. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Well, sometimes there are areas in the church that are needs. Maybe I look around and there's nobody gifted for it, but now you're looking for who's willing. And that's pretty important sometimes. Well, Psalm 78 is a challenge to, to all of us, whatever generation we're in. And I'm telling you this ahead of time, it drips with the gospel. New Testament themes pour from this text. So be ready for that. Pray with me, please, and we'll jump into this. Our Father, I thank you that we can come this morning, this beautiful summer morning, and open the Word of God together and, and think together about things that you find important to tell us. And I pray that you'd help us even as we sit and we think and, and look out the window and enjoy the sunshine and thoughts of activities later on. And, oh, Lord, so much, things that are good gifts from you. Uh, For these moments, would you help us here in your word to give due diligence to the things of the Spirit of God? So so help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Psalm 78, then, if you glance at it with me, we're going to read in a moment the first eight verses that I think give the the main point. Uh, And then starting at verse 9, he begins to flesh out what that looks like and draws it to a conclusion that I think is really gospel-centered um, I mentioned a moment ago that this teaching psalm, as it moves through the history of God's people, it drips with New Testament themes. And I want you to be, be, be thinking about this, be watching. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're, we're, we're aware of those kinds of themes. Ephesians 2, 10, uh, verse, one, uh, verse 1, of course, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy... This chapter is full of the mercy of God, even as we've sung already. Now, I've given you on your sermon notes three different elements, verses 1 through 8, and then this, this bigger section in the middle that you see on the back of your, your sermon notes, and then a conclusion, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work through it in that, in that, in that way. So I'm going to read Psalm 78, 1 through 8, and away we go here in God's word. Psalm 78, then, God's word. We read this, Give ear, O my people. To my teaching, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell the, to, the ne- to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. 
He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and that they should not be like their fathers. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Wow. So verse 8 is a bit of a shift. Previous to that, positive instruction, you might say. Verse 8, uh, wow, takes a, a, a very difficult turn. If you look at my notes, there are a couple things I'd like us to think about here. So Psalm 78 uh, has a clear purpose. And I put it this way, and I want to... I wanna, press on this for a moment. We must tell the next generation who God is and what he is like in such a way that they will love him and pursue him too. Now, I want you to think about that because sometimes, especially in our more conservative circles, so to speak, we, I believe we end up focusing so much on content. And believe me, I'm not against content. That we can, we can somehow give short time to, to the passion that makes it sing, that makes it live. Uh, sometimes in raising of our kids or in raising of our own hearts, we think, my goodness sakes, if, if, if my kid or if I could just like, I don't know, memorize the whole book of Ephesians, wouldn't that be cool? Surely my kid will love Jesus forever. If I could just memorize this part or this part, I could name all the apostles and the books of the Bible in order. Come on. If I could do certain things that are knowledge-based, certainly I would love God forever. And somewhere along the way, we find out, either from somebody else's life or our own, that, that it takes something more than that. It, it isn't just about packing in details. Believe me, details are good. Memorization, wonderful. But I'm saying here that we must tell the next generation who God is, what he's like, content, in such a way that they will love him and pursue him too. I think that's captured in verse 7, that they should set their hope in God. That's more than just giving them information. It's it's creating an atmosphere where their hearts come alive, where our hearts come alive, and, and our affections are captured by God and his word. I think this is something easily overlooked in a content-oriented age. Now, I'm saying here, as you look at your sermon notes, other texts speak to this issue as well. And I'm going to mention two, and I want to go to these, if you would do so with me. These are key texts in this discussion about handing off faith to the next generation. I'll go back to Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 through 9. First of all, if you're familiar with your Old Testament Jewish-type text, you're aware that this is famously called the Shema, which is a, a Hebrew word for hear, which is how the text begins. Hear, O Israel. So listen, listen is the idea. It's a command. Listen up, folks. And here it is in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Of course, New Testament, the first and greatest commandment, right? And these things, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, that's a very important paragraph in Jewish families. My goodness sakes, this is, these are marching orders. Some down through the years in more orthodox type Jewish faith, you've, maybe you've seen these guys on TV have little boxes on their forehead. You ever seen this? Where they have pieces of scripture because it says, man, I mean, put a frontlets between your eyes and another place where you put a little box on your hand. I mean, I, there it is. Um, and, and out on the doorpost of your, my goodness, you're going to put God's word out there. Surely that will cause me to love him more, right? And I'm not convinced, as perhaps you would be too, that the point here is to say, like, literally write it on your, in little slips of paper and stick it on your hat. I, I'm not sure that's the goal, but I think to have it implanted in my mind so that as I think, my thinking has changed and my hand not so much a little box in your hand, like that's going to fix it, but, but the reminder that the places my hand goes or my feet go, like we sang when we were little kids, oh, be careful, little feet where you go, be little hands where you, mouth, what you say, so on, that every part of our being would be, would be uh, shaped by what God has to say about the world. I think that's the point here. And in this context, teach this to your children in such a way that they too will love him and pursue him too. So let God's word just surround you and capture you. Not just put a plaque on your wall. There, fulfilled God's word. I put a plaque up that says, love the Lord your God. Is that it? I think it's a little more than that. So I, I love the Shema. I, I think sometimes it can be followed by missing the heart of it. And then I'm going to go to this text in Judges. Wow, this is a sobering text. Of course, this follows on the heels of the life of Moses and Joshua, of course, who's led the people of Israel after Moses. That's the book of Joshua. Now you come to Judges, and things are moving along chronologically. But if you come to chapter 2, verse 7, very sobering text. It says, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Well, that sounds wonderful. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And you skip to verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. Whoa, what happened here? Some of you um, maybe uh, remember Bruce Wilkinson walked through the Bible. And I don't know if any of you have heard his sermon, his famous sermon. It's been copied by many and referred to many times as well. uh, On the three chairs not three chairs, hip, hip, hooray. No, no, three chairs. And it's a sermon where he put three chairs on the platform and from this text thought together with people through those. So chair one, those are the people who, who God delivered out of Egypt. They saw the fire and the smoke and uh, the plagues. And man, first generation came to Christ. Some of you are first generation believers. Uh, it wasn't your grandma, grandma, grandpa, 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 grandpa. No, no, it's, it's you who came to Christ. That'd be first chair. You saw the mighty works of God. You are so convinced. I know this is true. And then you have generation two who hear this from generation one. And they say, man, that's amazing. What happened to my parents? But, but they hear it, but they're a step removed from, from seeing it. And knowing it experientially. But they've heard it. Because generation one says, I don't want you going where I went. 
So I'm going to protect you from that. Understandably, I don't want you to see all those things I saw or did. So stay away from the edge. And we, we, we pull them back. I get it. We should. I know. And then there's the third generation who, who are step removed yet. And Wilkinson from this text points out what happens here. Somehow, somehow that first generation passion becomes secondary. And then by the third generation, this generation heard and says, who cares? And walks away. And of course, that isn't bound to happen. Wilkinson's point, as I think the text would bear out in other places as well, is to say, okay, even as I hand off uh, information to generation number two, how can I help generation number two become generation number one by, by, them, by them experiencing the firsthand the power of God? How can I put them in a place or help them to see God at work in their life and generation three as well? How can I help them to see and know not only is God the God of my grandma and grandpa, but he is my God. So these are things to think about. And I think reflective of the point of Psalm 78. We want to tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. Your sermon notes there, that little fill-in under the third bullet point, the goal is not simply transmission of facts alone. Facts are important. Facts are wonderful. Uh, But not just facts alone, but the persuasion of the heart or the affections Jonathan Edwards, of course, famous, uh, most famous theologian in, in American history, uh, religious affections, and many down through the years, great theologians through the centuries have written on this as well. It's not enough merely to hand off facts, as wonderful as they may be. Dear God, how can I hand off, how can I do this in my family? How can I do this with my grandkids? How can we do this in a church? How do we do this in a church? Hand off not just lessons, but passion for God. You see the difference? Uh, It isn't enough if we just graduate kids who can spell out all the answers, name the books of the Bible, 12 apostles, uh, interact with some theology, but do they love it? Do they own it? Are their hearts captured by the beauty and glory of Christ? That becomes a greater concern and should be. And I'm saying here, uh, my fourth Little bullet point, verse 8, is a dagger to the heart of every parent or grandparent or church family. Can you imagine this as words on your tombstone? What a disaster this is to shift from the the great call in verses 4 through 7, tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord and tell them not to be like their fathers, their forefathers. Tell them not to be like that. Can you imagine if that's you? Tell, tell the kids and the grandkids, don't be like them. A stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Man, oh Lord, deliver us, deliver me from that. That kind of a statement about any of our lives or about our church ministry. No, we don't want to be just handing off facts. We want to be cultivating a love for Christ, a passion for the word of God, being overwhelmed by the glory of God. This is essential. And every church should should take that to to, to heart as every family as well. So my my heading there, in case you haven't looked it up already, the urgency of cultivating a legacy. That's the word I wanted there. A legacy of passionate faith. Not just contents, passion, passion for God and for his word. Uh, The urgency of this, I would commend it to you as the point of this whole chapter. I think that right there is the point of all of these these verses. Now, 
if you move to the second side of your sermon notes there, that second bullet point, the devastation of, rebel, of rebellion versus God's mercy and judgment. And I gave you here in the, in the parentheses, you see the breakdown uh, of, the, of the, this larger section of teaching. It moves from verse 9. I, I call the break at verse 64. Uh, not all uh, people who work with the text put a break there. I did for reasons I'll explain when we get there. And I realize it kind of captures the middle of a, what looks like a section. I understand that. I did it for preaching, not necessarily for, for how I think the text is laid out. But I think there's a shift in, in, in the, the topic at that point. Okay? But I, 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 want to, I want to browse this with you. And I don't know if you've read this and if you mark in your Bible, as, as I do in my preaching Bibles, um, that helps things spring out to, to my attention. So verses 9 to 16 kind of forms a section, and then 17 down to 31. And there are, there are different shifts that are taking place here. And it's interesting to me, Asaph, as he writes this, is not dealing with history strictly chronologically, like you or I would, I think. If you said, let me talk to you about the history of America, you'd probably start at the beginning and kind of move along. Well, he kind, of, he kind of cycles through a couple of events and goes there again and goes there again. It's like he's, he's, he's reminding him this and then this. And, then, and I wasn't done talking about that. I'm going to go back to that again. And I'm going to go back to that again. So you see re- themes repeated, but all of it is lifting up. The, the work of God in history. Now, on my, my notes here, I want you to notice with me the contrast between they and he. Okay? It runs through this entire middle section. They did this, they did this, they did this, but he, God, here's what God did. And I'm, I'm not going to draw the conclusion for you first. I'm just going to read some of these as you glance through the text with me. So he's going to talk, first of all, about these people called the Ephraimites, verse 9 armed with a bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant. Verse 11, they forgot his works in the sight of their father. He performed wonders. Do you see the contrast? They did this, they did this. He performed wonders. Verse 13, he divided the sea. Verse 14, he led them. He split rocks in the wilderness, gave them, gave them water to drink. He made streams come from the rocks. So this paragraph, this section begins with they, they did not, they did not, but he did. And that's the same contrast through the whole middle section. Look what the people did, and look how God responded. It's amazing. They tested God, verse 18. They tested God in their heart, demanded food that they craved. He struck the rock, so the water gushed out. Wow, verse 22. They did not believe in God. They did not trust his saving power, but he commanded the skies above and poured rain down on them manna from heaven. Wow, caused the east wind to blow by his power, brought, brought meat for them. Man, the contrast. Now, there's a little paragraph in the middle, uh, verses, uh, uh, verse 34 through verse 37. It's very telling, very convicting. In the middle of all this, he says, when he killed them, and of course there were diseases and battles and all kinds of things, when things went poorly, in other words, then they sought him. Isn't that interesting? How much has humanity changed? When our lives go down the toilet and we say, "Uh uh-oh, this is really bad. I've got illness or I've got financial ruin or I've got this kind of problem. Whoa, whoa, I'm going to seek God. How many people went to church right after 9-11? I don't know if you remember. Every time there's a big natural disaster, it's like, oh, 
We better straighten up for the next three weeks. And people rush right away and reform and new commitments. And then, I don't know, a month later, we figure out how it happened or what happened. We get a good naturalistic explanation. We say, okay, let's get back to normal. Wow, that was a nice little excursion into religious things. Well, that's what happened here. When all these things went poorly, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. Or we could put parentheses, air quotes around this. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. <laughs> But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. They had a little revival, in other words. They had a little revival. They said, oh, yes, let's get back to business with God. Have you ever done this? Had a little moment of revival that lasted, I don't know, a month or two, six months, and you got back to normal. That's, man, this is right out of history. I mean, this is, this is what the human heart often does. I, I better straighten it up with the Lord. I went to summer camp when you're a kid. You, you watched Billy Graham on TV and said, okay, I'm going to get back with it. And, and, but you didn't long term. But, but look at this, verse 38. But God, but he being compassionate. I mean, for what reason is he being compassionate? Is it because they deserve it? They're loving on him so much. He's saying, whoa, what great kids of mine. No, it's not. He being compassionate, what is God like? He atoned for their iniquity, didn't destroy them, restrained his anger often. He remembered that they were but flesh. And then back to the days, verse 40, they rebelled against him in the desert. 41, they tested him again and again. Verse 42, he redeemed them. He performed his signs. He turned their rivers to blood. This is right back to the, 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 the signs in Egypt. You remember where he turned the rivers to blood, sent swarms of flies. It goes right back to the Exodus. He gave their crops to the destroyer. Look at all the works of God for people whose hearts were not steadfast to him. All the way down, made a path for his anger. I mean, 50, struck down the firstborn of Egypt. That's the Passover. Led his people like sheep. Wow. Back and forth, you do this all the way down through this middle, big middle, chunky section of the text. Look at what the people did. And look at how God continued to be faithful and merciful to them. And I, I, I notice here on your, your study notes, the, what I call the emotion-laden transitions, that, that Asaph, as he tells this history, he's intending for the reader, that would be us, all down through the generation, to feel the emotion of this. So he says in verse 17, yet they sinned still more against him. And in verse 32, in spite of all this, that is the mercy of God, they still sinned. 56, yet they tested and rebelled against the most high God and didn't keep his testimonies. The intent here, I'm saying, it's implied. Can you believe it? Can you believe these people? Wow. Every time God turns around, he's merciful. They just say, thank you very much, and turn the other direction before you can hardly, uh, you know, imagine what's going on. In spite of this, they still sin. It's intended to have us say, wow, those guys, they missed it. But at the same time that we say, can you believe it? Our own hearts say, yeah, actually, I can believe it. Because I'm kind of maybe that way too. Look at the mercy of God. Now, Asaph, the writer as he looks at the devastation of rebellion, the repeated patterns of turning away and the repeated evidences of the mercy of God, he, he, he recalls certain powerful moments. He's remembering. That's, that's a big concept in the, new, in the whole Bible, really, Old Testament and New. Remember, don't forget, book of uh, Deuteronomy, you can find those themes repeated. Don't forget, remember, don't forget. Remember, don't forget. 
That is not just remember as in I've got the facts, but draw to mind in such a way that it influences you. So Asaph is drawing to my powerful moments from Israel's history when God showed himself strong. So the, 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 the Exodus shows up several times. This shows up in verse 12. Specifically, I'm going to miss a few. It shows up again in verse 43, perform those signs. And you find it again in, uh, come on, there was another one. Yeah, all the way through that whole section, uh, verse, verse 51 mentions Egypt again. Zone, you see that uh, name a couple of times, verse 12. That's a, a location in, Israel, or, sorry, in Egypt. So it's talking about God's work. I've mentioned to you many times uh, that there are two Big redemptive events in the Bible. The whole Bible hangs on these two. One is the exodus from Egypt that foreshadows the bigger one, which is the work of Christ on the cross. So the Old Testament really kind of circles the wagons around that event. The work of God in delivering his people. That, again, Passover lamb, the shedding of blood that lays the foundation for the, the even greater redemptive event. If you get those two redemptive events stuck in your mind, then you'll understand how the New Testament looks back to, 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 to Passover, the Exodus, and all of that looks forward. So that when Jesus comes, you say, I've been, huh, I've been listening to this music the whole time. A God who redeems the shedding of blood, no forgiveness apart from it. Here is Jesus, the Passover lamb. So if you listen to the music well of the first, you're already when the, when the music begins on the work of Jesus as the Bible moves along. God's deliverance in, in Exodus, in the Exodus from Egypt. God's provision in the wilderness journey. He repeats this too, doesn't he? Splitting rocks in the wilderness, verse 15. Raining down manna from heaven in verse 24. Uh, giving them meat to eat all the way along. He led them in safety. I'm in verse 53. He's leading his people like sheep. So the Exodus, God's provision in the wilderness, and of course, God's active judgment for their unbelief and their idolatry that we saw already in verses 34, uh, verse 34 and uh, some of the other texts here. Uh, God's, God's action to pull them back. Now, my third bullet point here is kind of a summary. God's mercy to his rebellious people is a predominant feature of this text. The mercy of God toward people who don't deserve it. And folks, let me tell you, the human heart, I think, the human heart, every person, is, is kind of tends to want to, to give ourselves credit a little bit. I mean, come on. I earned some of it, didn't I? Look what a nice person I am. Look at the things I haven't done. Did you notice? I haven't done a whole bunch. I could be much worse than I am. And there's some things I haven't done. So please give me just a little bit of credit. As we, we, we would say, no, I don't believe that. But I think our hearts kind of do. 95% the work of God, 5%, well, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm such a nice guy. I, I think our hearts kind of want to go there and give ourselves a little bit of credit rather than just flat out, no, no, forget the other 5%. It's the mercy of God. Do you, do you, do you know that? By his mercy, he saved us. Titus 3, 5, of course, not by works of righteousness that we've done. According to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He poured out upon us richly. No, not by works of righteousness that we've done. Psalm 78 is great evidence of this, and it's great evidence of it for you too. If you know Christ today, why is that true? Is it because you're so all-fired smart? Hate to tell you, tiger. Not so much. Oh, the mercy of God that would reach out to us, that would meet us where we're at and draw our hearts to himself. Absolutely stunning. As I mentioned, New Testament themes pour through Psalm 78. Now, 
as you go down to verse 65, what I've taken as my, my final section, you can see that verse 65, there's a shift here. The Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. Well, that's an interesting analogy. The Lord woke up and it's like he, he spoke up. It wasn't that God was sleeping. That's, a, that's what people call an anthropomorphism, where you ascribe human terms to, to God. It would not properly apply to him. God doesn't sleep. We read that in the Bible, of course, many times. But God, it was like, it was like God acted in a big way all of a sudden. That's kind of the idea. He put his adversaries to rout. And then you have a whole bunch of the actions of God. And, and as you read right down to the end of the chapter, the Lord awoke. He put his adversaries to rout, put them to shame. That's a repetition. That's the two lines kind of repeat each other. He rejected the tent of Joseph, did not choose the, tent, the tribe of Ephraim, the bigger and more popular tribes. Instead, he chose the tribe of Judah, the smaller one. Uh, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, which he loves. He built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Now, even those verses at the close that speak of David, is, is the point here what a great guy David was? Come on. Not really. No, the, the emphasis here isn't on what a great guy David was, but what a great God who gave a, the right leader to his people at the right time. The emphasis here, the hero of heaven, as we sang earlier, isn't David. The hero of heaven is God himself. Look what God did as he, as he spoke up on behalf of these people who continually wandered away. Oh, the mercy of God. And at the time, when the time was right, when the time was right, he gave them a place. You see on my notes here, he gives them a place to worship, that is Jerusalem, and a person to lead them, King David. And I'm saying to us, God's choosing of Judah, Jerusalem, and David, as noted in that text, they are all acts of mercy and grace. God's unmerited favor, that he would give them a place, Jerusalem, that there would be a, 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 you know, a tabernacle, and then a temple, and then another temple, uh, the, 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 the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem, and then crucified on the cross outside of Jerusalem, Man, a place, a place, and then the person to lead him, King David. And I mentioned here, of course, as you see my notes, God's choosing of David, the king with the heart of the shepherd, reflects God's own approach to caring for his people. God, who has the heart of a shepherd, chooses David and took him from the sheepfolds to shepherd. He shepherded. You see the emphasis. What, how does God treat his people, his sheep, prone to wander? Lord, I feel it. We sing sometimes. How does God interact with us? Well, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And of course, that involves not only his comforting care, but his, his looking for sheep that go astray. Uh, to study the life of shepherds is not only to think what a great comfort, what a great hug they give when you, you know, at the end of the day, yes, certainly that, but sheep tend to wander off. And what a good shepherd that goes after a sheep and says, uh-uh, come on back, come on back. His rod and his staff, they give us comfort. His correction. Psalm 23, certainly Isaiah 40. He will lead his flock like a shepherd is the idea. Um, wow, we read that as we studied Isaiah. The shepherding of God. And then, of course, I mention here, God's covenant with David ultimately points to Jesus. Second Samuel 7. The greater son of David is the only perfect and truly good shepherd is our Savior. So this chapter, this teaching chapter, 
as I mentioned at the beginning, it drips with New Testament themes. Teach the next generation. Tell the children that they should set their hope in God and not forget. Don't forget. Here are things God has done. All of his mercy in the face of people who turned away. Do you see the mercy of God and do you love his mercy? Not only seeing it, but to love it. Because to see truth without affection, without loving the truth, to see the work of Christ without loving his, his work and loving him, is to see glory and not love it, is to miss the point altogether. A person can go to church for years and years and years, learn facts and figures and quote all kinds of things, but if there is not the affection, the, the, the love, the heart, the turning of the heart, to the things of God, we are missing something. And I fear, honestly, it's possible to know a lot of religion, listen to me, and never be born again. Okay? I remember years ago, um, having that come home to me in a very real way, a, this bunch of years, a, a barber who was working away, cutting my hair, and we were talking a bit about things. And he says, hey, I know a lot about religion. And he did it. He went through all the books of the Bible, backwards and forwards, names of the apostles. He had all these things figured out and his heart was far away. There was no love of the truth. That wasn't a bad guy. A great guy did a good haircut. I'm just saying he knew a lot of facts, but there wasn't any heart. And I, I wonder that about all of us. As you, as you and I learn facts and read our Bibles and memorize things and, and, and say that's fascinating or whatever we say, is, is there the, the response of the heart in, in, in believing and in loving his truth? And if there's a coldness in your heart, you, have, you would be right to say, Lord, what's going on in me? Why isn't there no affection for the truth? Why is there no love of Christ? Why is there a coldness? You would be right to ask. So I have under that final section of let's talk, scripture issues a repeated call to remember. And it isn't just remembering bare facts, but drawing to mind and drawing life from. You see this? Drawing life from God's gracious acts, his mercy, his faithfulness. And then, of course, I think about this for us as, as, as a church. You know, in Station 316, in Venture Clubs, all the different things we do that teach children, Youth Group Area 57, all of these things. We want to capture the hearts of our kids. Their affections for Christ. Now, just give them facts. There, we had a good morning, taught them a lesson. Okay, good, good. Did they hear it sing? from your teaching? Did, did, they, did they see the glory of God and love it? Were they drawn to him? Or did they memorize a couple facts? I say that today for us too. We've talked about some facts. Is there a resonance in your heart to, to love the truth? And if there isn't, this is something to ask God to give you. Um, let my heart, oh God, be drawn to yours. Please light the fire that maybe once was there we want the next generation to set their hope in God and not forget his works. It starts with, with us. I would like to pray for us that God would help us with this. So would you stand with me, please? Father, thank you so much for Asaph and Psalm 78. I thank you for the challenge, for the call, for the journey through Israel's history. And Father, I pray that we as a church and all the families, uh, groups that make up this church, that we would indeed be 
be getting the job done of telling the next generation and implanting a love for you in their hearts, uh, doing so in such a way that they too will respond and love the truth and love you as the God who has given it. Father, deliver us from just passing on bare facts. But Father, even now, uh, we uh, adults of a whole variety of ages, oh, Father, would you, would you stir in our hearts as well? And where, there is a, where the fire is burning pretty low, would you, would you turn that flame up? Would you awaken a love for the glory of Christ in a way that maybe used to be there or maybe never was? But, our oh, Father, you alone can do that. And I ask you to do it as we come individually and say, Lord, here's my heart. Please help me. Please help. Do in my heart what only you can do. Father, may that be our prayer so that as a church we will not have Psalm 78 verse 8 happen to us, that the next generation should not follow our example. Do your great work in us, I pray today. Thank you for the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.